from a songwriting geek way, like what a bridge does. So a bridge is by nature, a musical section that is a contrasting section from the rest of the song. And it's really, it's an opportunity to say something more. It's an opportunity to say something special and something extra. And a lot of songwriters, when they get to the bridge in the song, they're like, oh, you know, you feel like you've worked so hard on the verses and the chorus. You're like, oh, I don't want to do a bridge. I'll just put in something musical. And for me, like the bridge section can be one of the most important parts of the song because it allows you to say a grand statement after you've kind of been in the details. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. If you're familiar with the show, you know that every once in a while, I have episodes that leave the traditional format and bring you inside my world, sort of a way to show you my authentic self. In episodes 20 and 21, for instance, I turned myself into the guest. In episode 36, my guest was Susan Cattaneo, a phenomenal singer-songwriter whose music you can hear at the end of every episode. She also happens to be an artist I manage and, of course, my wife. And by the way, I'm thrilled to report that since we recorded that episode, her latest record, All Is Quiet, was announced as the number two record of the month on the folk radio chart for the month of April and was still in the top 10 in the month of May. Which is actually perfect because All Is Quiet is actually the topic of this episode. This is a continuation of the conversation started in episode 41, in which Susan and I discussed the process we followed to produce the record in the pandemic, some of the key players involved, and we started the discussion on how she wrote the songs. Today, we're going to talk about how she wrote all the other songs, the ones that were not covered in that episode. You can go and listen to episode 41 if you haven't heard it, either before you listen to this episode, or you can also listen to it afterwards. And then, of course, go and listen to Susan Music. You can find it on all your favorite streaming platforms, Susan Cattaneo. Or if you're even more so inclined, you can buy directly from her website at susanmusic.com. One final thing. Remember, I am giving away a free copy of Bill Principale's book, Improvisational Leadership, to my favorite review for the show written in June or July on Apple Podcasts. Also, I am giving a free copy of Susan's record to my favorite review written in July or August. So go to Apple Podcasts and leave us some great ratings and write some great reviews. And now, the episode. We pick the conversation up from a song that has quickly become one of Susan's most beloved. A DJ favorite on Mother's Day and a song that never fails to cause some really good tears in the audience when she plays it at shows. It's a song about the relationship between mothers and daughters and it's called Borrowed Blue. All right, so third song on the album is a song that actually existed before the album. It's a beautiful song that it's called Borrow Blue. It's about their relationship with mothers and daughters. Yeah, so for me, our daughter was applying to college and she was just kind of a mess at the time. I think she felt very, it was terrible for me as the mom to see her so insecure. And so she just kind of, was so worried that she wasn't going to get in anywhere. And it was really a hard time for us as parents to kind of guide her through that successfully. And I remember thinking like, why doesn't she believe in herself? Like, wh- what did I do to make her not believe in herself? And it it started me thinking about like, 
what insecurities had I inherited and what had I passed on to her? And so I, I wanted to write her a song, a love song. So it's a love song to our daughter to tell her that I understand that, that she's going through a rough time, but that I'm going to do my best to be a supportive parent that doesn't hopefully translate my insecurities onto her. So it's a really personal song for me. Yeah. And what I love about it is that actually it ends up being about a lot more than just that. It's, it, it really, to me, it captures all the dynamics in the relationship between mothers and daughters and the expectations that come of mothers in society. I think it's a very powerful song and uh, very proud of it. Thank you. Daughters and mothers carry the same scars. We question our worth, what we deserve. We inhabit the same dark. We say, I love you. Then what do we do? We put ourselves down, put ourselves last. Look at our lives, a half-empty glass There's something borrowed Something blue We've been handed down this sorrow But we wear it as if it were true Something borrowed Something The next songs, Blackbirds. <laughs> it's not your favorite. <laughs> no, I love the song. I love the song. <laughs> you told me, like, I played it for you and you're like, I don't think I like that song. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, I think it's one of the songs that it requires deep listening. I now actually really love the song. But I also love the story of how the song came together because I think it speaks a lot about the creative process. Well, yeah. So the origin of the song came about because I was thinking, you know, I come from divorced parents. You come from parents that are still together. And that means that when you and I have a conflict, divorce is always a possibility for me. And I think for you, you're just like, well, no, we're just having an argument and we'll get through it. And I'm like, I'm not sure we're going to get through it. And so I thought, isn't it interesting how two people can come together in a relationship with kind of different past experiences? And that leads them to have different interpretations of whether you can have a happy ever after. So that was the concept. And I was like, oh, I'm going to write it through the lens of of folk tales, of fairy tales, because, you know, it's something from my past. So I went and like looked at old fairy tales. So part of my writing process has a lot to do with like research. I, I have an idea and then I research it a little bit and then that gives me kind of cool details. And so I kind of focused on the four and 20 blackbirds, four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, na, 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 that nursery rhyme. Then I researched that blackbirds were, they're an omen for death and they're an omen for change. And I was like, oh, that's also really interesting. So that led me into writing this really, really intense lyrical whatever that was the first draft of this song. And I was like, I have to name all of the blackbirds. And there's like the blackbird of shame and there, then there's one for grief and then there's one for, I don't even know. And it was very, very clever. And I loved it. 
And I was like, I have to hold, whatever I do as I'm rewriting the song, that part has to stay because I love that part. It's really clever. It's really lyrical. It's really like literary. And so I kept trying to write around it and I had a whole different musical bed and whatever and hated the song hated the song. And I was like, I just gotta like figure it out. Meanwhile, Lauren's like, so what's this song Blackbird? What is it? I'm like, oh, I'm sending it to you any day now. (laughs) And I was like, I haven't just can't find my way through it. And so unlike what most people say, what the expression is, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I actually threw the baby out with the bathwater. I was like, I'm getting rid of this intense lyrical section that I love about Blackbirds. And So once I threw that away, the song kind of wrote itself. It suddenly became so much clearer that it needed to be simpler rather than more complex. And so kind of seeded every once in a while in the song are references to a lot of different nursery rhymes. And so I write from the perspective of nursery rhymes through metaphor to talk about this concept. And by getting rid of that whole piece it allowed me to have this little moment in the song after the chorus where I do this, which I love that part because it kind of like was kind of my version of what a blackbird would sound like. And I think it really makes the song. And then when uh, I finally sent it to Lauren and Kevin, I think Kevin really responded to that. And picked up the mandolin and created this beautiful, beautiful part that feels like a musical version of what a blackbird would sound like. So for me, that song is maybe one of my favorite tracks on the album for the kind of the sonic landscape of it. The fact that it not only melodically has something interesting on in it, but the instrument is really beautiful. It has good prosody. Something that I love about the song too, and, and the story of the creative process is the fact that sometimes, you know, you need to have the courage of letting go of something that is a fabulous idea, but it doesn't work within the context or something that you think beginning is, you know, that's the idea like that. In some ways, the idea of writing through this specific nursery rhyme, that was the spark of the song. That's, you know, that, that, that was like the meat of the song. And sometimes in any creative activity, you need to like take three steps back and look at what's the overall goal that you're saying. And I'm also, I'm going to tell a story here. And this podcast is probably the only place where you're going to be able to hear this. So it's funny that a song where you say, you know, that talks about how we interpret differently. Sometimes the, you know, our marriage or, or how we make it through. It's also a song that I used on a day that you were having a difficult day to get like a really cheap laugh out of you. So I am an avid collector of guitars and guitar effects. And there's a wonderful boutique maker, Analog Man, that for people who are music fans and know Pink Floyd, in the song Echoes, there's this sort of seagull sound, which David Gilmer created by wiring his wah pedal in reverse and then that created a specific sound with controlling the tone of the guitar and i think mike Pierre, who is the owner of and main person at analog men created a pedal which is called the albatross which is a wad that has an auto wad that has a switch where you can basically create the 
David Gilmer sound. And so we were in the middle of recording. She was in the middle of recording the record. And I, one day I took the song and I put at the end of the song, every time the line goes, the song, you know, what would the birds say or whatever. I put this seagull sound, which we have called the uh, lonesome seagull. <laughs> <laughs> and so unbeknownst to her after I had done this one day, she came up, she was really, I, I don't remember what was going on, but you were really not in a great mood. And I played that song for you and it was a very funny moment because so, i was like wait what is that what did you put up there it was awesome and i could not i uh, i worked really hard to make that version end up on the record but it didn't i'm sorry i'm so sorry to but, but you are gonna get to hear it right now I should also add that this is the file from that original day, the one that I played for you. So the mix is not the final mix, and this is why the voices are a little more embedded into the guitars than in the final production. There goes the lonesome seagull. Oh my God. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Next song is Broken Things. Broken Things. Yeah. Yes. And an interesting story behind Broken Things that I'm going to share. I don't know if you were going to share it, but I think it's really fun. So you write with our friend Mark Carelli. There's a song that you two wrote together that ended up first on your uh, The Hammer and the Heart record. And then and then up in Mark's last record, the one that he released about a year and a half ago. And the Broken Things was part of the co-writing session. It's one, one of your idea that you had brought into a session with him. And then you went home and rewrote the whole thing and asked him, following writer's etiquette, you're like, look, I've done this. And Mark said, well, just take the song as these heavy it all to yourself. And then there was another song that the two of you had started together, which I think is like, I'm going to write this song by myself. Is that how the story went? Yeah. So we got together to co-write and I had this like super folky, you know, for me, like Broken Things has like a really like fragile, definitely picking, like it's a gentle, like picking pattern thing. The melody is really, really high for me to sing. It's very rangy. And I brought that in. So I had like a verse and a chorus of that. So I had, didn't have the second verse. And he had brought his thing that he brought in was like this really fun song about sitting around a table and drinking with your friends. <laughs> and it was just such, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting kind of co-writing story because we had written very successfully together. We wrote a song called The River Always Wins. And I think because maybe we had started the idea at the same time. So it kind of generated together. We wrote together. And this was, we came together with these two really disparate ideas. 
and we were both kind of in different places. And so try as we might, we just couldn't write either one of the songs together because I wasn't in the mood to write a song about sitting around the table drinking wine with my friends. And he wasn't in the mood to write a song about like the delicate brokenness of the world. And so uh, we worked together for like five hours and then we're like, well, okay, let's just table it for now. And then it was good because we kind of got together and I was like, look, I ended up writing the song. And he's like, great, I ended up writing the song. So I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so all's well that ends well. Yeah, and Broken Things to me, it's a it's sort of an important transition point in the whole part of the album. Because for me, that's the the song that sort of like start the journey towards hope. Right. Right. Because like let's talk about the story behind Broken Things and then what it does in the context of the album. I totally agree. And I'm so glad that you say that because that was intentional. So nine songs on the album, Broken Things is track number five. And it was important that I start to kind of, I'd been in darkness for the first part of the album. And then it was important that I kind of start to have moments of light. So Broken Things ah, is a very personal song once again, because in 2017, I fell headfirst down a flight of stairs and broke a lot of bones. And it was a really, really long and hard recovery for me. Poor Dino was part of that, as was everyone in my family. And I I wondered if I was ever, you know, kind of the same thing. Like I, I was so chronically sleep deprived and in pain that you know, I was like, oh my God, is this ever going to be over? And it took me about six months before I felt like myself again. And I was thinking, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? What is the lesson? What is the lesson behind all of that pain? And Broken Things is about taking a trauma like that and translating it into something that is a lesson or a gift. And so for me, Broken Things is about how you know, we're all broken, but it's the fact that we're broken that makes us who we are. And I think really, you know, if I think about my life, there have been events in my life that have caused a creative trajectory to go a different direction. And in looking back, I think, oh, that was meant to happen because by changing where I was heading, I discovered this new wonderful thing about myself. And I think that accident really allowed me to be vulnerable on this album. I don't think, not that I, I needed the accident to be vulnerable, but I certainly think that I know what it's like to be down and out and to need to ask for help and to need to, to be fragile and to be vulnerable. And I think that that physically led me to a place where I allowed myself to be vulnerable in my music. Yeah. And I think what is beautiful in the song at the end, you know, is that we can make our world and only feel the edges. We can speak our words and only hear the hurt, or we can take each day a gift that is unspoken and see the beauty in the broken. And I love the fact that that's something people may not realize. The chorus goes, the beauty in broken things. That's like the main line in the chorus, the refrain. But the last word that people hear in the song is the word, the beauty, which to me, it's really, it's staking you. And it's like, I've been through the hard thing, but there are broken things, but I'm leaving you with the beauty. 
Cause a life we'll lived must always bear a The next song of the record is a song that is very meaningful to me and it hits me really, really deeply. It's a song that's called Diamond Days. You wrote it with our good friend Helene Cronin. And in some ways, one could say that it's a little bit a variation on the theme that is covered in Broken Things because it says, you know, diamonds are not made in a day. It talks about the fact that it takes patience, pressure. There's this great line that says it takes feeling lost in the dark. But what really struck me and what really like moves me every time I hear it is this line at the end of the song that goes, we are all meant to catch the light. And it's the idea that no matter how much we suffer, no matter how hard it is, we all have a right. We have a right to happiness and we have a right to bloom into who we are. I agree. And it is really a very special song, one that you and Helene should be really, really, really proud of. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, H Helene and I got together. She's a wonderful writer. So if anyone's looking for great songwriting, please check out Helene Cronin. Um, she's just amazing. She lives in Texas and Nashville and kind of moves back and forth between those two places and has written a lot of really fabulous song with, with people. So she and I got together and I was the one that brought that hook. And, uh, you know, most people would be like, oh, these are the diamond days. These are the sparkly days. You know, these are the good days. Like these are the days that everything is like a gem. And instead, I actually wanted to write about the fact that how are diamonds made? Like diamonds are made in the dark and diamonds are made from pressure and from the earth creating a hard situation. And for me, I was like, that felt like what we were kind of all going through, even, you know, I think we wrote it actually in 2019, you know, so things were rough. We didn't know how rough they were going to get, but, and I think it's important to talk about that bridge because we're all meant to catch the light. I think it's really important, especially because, you know, when you think about kind of a, from a songwriting geek way, like what a bridge does. So a bridge is by nature, a musical section that is a contrasting section from the rest of the song. And it's really, it's an opportunity to say something more. It's an opportunity to say something special and something extra. And 
a lot of songwriters, when they get to the bridge in the song, they're like, oh, you know, you feel like you've worked so hard on the verses and the chorus. You're like, oh, I don't want to do a bridge. I'll just put in something musical. And for me, like the bridge section can be one of the most important parts of the song because it allows you to say a grand statement after you've kind of been in the details. Diamond Days does that. It kind of like, we're, we're in like what it's like to be a diamond, what it is like to make a diamond, you know, these are the diamond days. And then the bridge kind of lifts us up for a moment to look at the, look at the land below and be like, you know what? We're all going through this and we're, we all deserve the right to shine. We all deserve that. Every one of us. I think it's a really wonderful song. For me, like it's a wonderful song. I really love to play it. And I love to have people sing along. That's the, that's the sing along section of the show. Because I think it's important to kind of have people sing. We're all meant to catch the light as a group. It's kind of wonderful. Yes. The few shows that we've had since the world has reopened, there's nothing like being in a room with uh, people singing that. It's It's a highlight of the shows. We're all meant to catch the light We're all meant to catch the light We're all meant to catch the light Catch the light But it takes patience and pressure In the dark In the hard work In the hard times We find out Who we are Something beautiful Taking shape We can't hurry through These making Song number seven, which is a song called No Hearts Here, which it's again a great example of writing a metaphor because underneath it, it is a political song. I wrote that the week after the 2020 election. <laughs> For me, I don't know, like I, there was all talk about the blue wave. And to me, it seemed very clear. I don't know how to talk about this without being supercharged and whatever. But for me, it seemed super clear that the 2020 election was about voting what was right morally or what was wrong morally for me, and not just politically. I, I really felt like there was this questioning of like, what do you believe in as a human? And to read the news that so many people had voted for a, a party and a person that I couldn't possibly understand or get behind led me to writing that song. It was kind of like my shock and sadness for what had happened. And so like in all my songs, there are 
a lot of kind of subtle references to it being political. So, you know, it starts with woke up in a red haze, right? So red and then, and then the bridge is the party's over. The end is coming closer. And so for me, there are lots of kind of little subtle things in there. But I think the cool thing about that song is if you didn't know it was political, you wouldn't know it was political. It's just a song about two people not being able to communicate with each other. And so the first verse kind of points at their, you know, there are no hearts here. Like, you know, I thought I saw your heart upon your sleeve, but you believe in something different. But the second verse says to look in the mirror. And so it's about like not just placing blame outwards. It's about accepting that there are two people involved in a discussion, in a conflict, and that both people have to be accountable. So what I think it's fascinating is that, you know, you, I'm going to share something that I've heard you say several times when you talk about your writing process. You very often start with a hook or, or, or a title because you want something very strong. And that the title of No Hearts Here had existed for a long time <laughs> because you you have had hearts in the title of your records three times. Yeah. Your second album is called Heaven to Heartache. Haunted Heart and the Hammer and the Heart. I remember having a conversation where you're like, you know, this album is going to be called All is Quiet, so there's No Hearts Here. And then you think like, oh, I need to write a song called No Hearts Here. And the title had floated around and from something that was kind of a joke inside joke if you will this is actually a very serious song and once again a very multi-layered song because as you pointed out it can be read as a political song but it's really in general a song about taking accountability for the differences in a relationship no hearts here just an empty shell no hearts here as near as I can tell I thought I saw your heart upon your sleeve But I was wrong and you believe what you believe No heart here So after this like little dip in the darkness again, I think the next two songs are really the the redemption part. Song number eight, Hold On To Hope, which started, I'm going to share something personal for people. Really the idea of Hold On To Hope, your, your father had a difficult health situation at some point and, you know, it was the idea, it was thinking of him that he should hold on to hope. And then I think this song kind of like, ended up being sort of an anthemic song about the idea of, you know, where we were when you wrote it and when you recorded the fact that there's hope coming out. Well, I, I love what you said about No Hearts Here because I think it also applies to this in the sense that, so a lot of the time what happens for me is I'll come up with an idea, a song idea, and then I don't quite know what to do with it yet. I don't know where it belongs. So I'll just like 
put it in my phone or I'll write it down or I'll, you know, and then I'm like, huh, what does this sound like? And I remember this is like, I don't think you know this, Dino. So at one point I was going to go to Texas and write with this wonderful singer songwriter down there. And I wanted to prepare a song for her so that I could co-write and bring something. And I had this idea of like, there's a song called, if you're going through hell, keep on going. And I remember like, oh, okay, I'm going to write a country song like that. And it's going to be like, you know, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. And it was this boom, chicka, boom, chicka thing that I was going <laughs> to write. And I just, I never ended up writing with her. And so it was this line was just kind of floating around. And then my dad had this medical problem and we were all on a Zoom, my whole family kind of discussing like, what would be the next steps? What should he do? And my brother-in-law, David Zarnecki, who's a wonderful poet, said during the Zoom, he's like, well, you know, the only thing that we can do is hold on to hope. And I was like, oh, I love that line. I want to write that song. I feel like I want to do that. And so I'm like, I'm walking the dog and I'm singing, hold on to hope. And I was like, oh, wait, hope rhymes with rope. <gasps> I have a place to put that line. And so the chorus became like, hold on to hope. When you feel at the end of your rope, tie a knot. And don't let go, just hold on to hope. I was like, oh, I'm so glad that it didn't turn into a country boom chaka boom chaka song because the song really has like meaning for me. I think it's definitely the most anthemic song on the album. It really feels like a big statement. And so it's less about kind of like intimate personal details of my life. And I'm more writing to, to the world when I sing that. follow at the beginning is the song that finishes it in some ways hold on to hope could also be the last song of the record but i think that it sort of lays you know hold on to hope and it's almost like okay now that we've made it through the tunnel where are we going and that's we're following our intuition yes yes i hadn't thought about that but i think you're right you know hold on to hope ends with like this really big it's a big end, multiple harmonies, like really like probably 12 harmony tracks. And, you know, Duke pulls out the electric guitar. And so it has like a very kind of big feel. And I think for an album called All Is Quiet, I did not want it to end in a big feeling song. I wanted it to end in a quiet, reflective song. 
And so for me, follow was kind of the perfect bookend to the first song, All Is Quiet. And I think what I love also about follow is that it starts with one voice, right? And then it adds a harmony on it. Then it adds a third harmony on it. And then it adds a fourth harmony on it. And then the last chorus is like this huge, big, all the harmonies all together. And then it ends again with one voice. And I think, you know, it's kind of like you can rely on a thousand people. You can try and make decisions on your life based on what people are telling you. But when it comes down to it, you're really the only one who knows what is right for you. And so it was important that it end with a singular voice. Yeah, I think when I hear, you know, it's kind of always at this visual when I hear the record of follow being like, if, if it was a movie, you know, there would be like everybody would leave the room and then this little Tinkerbell-like creature would show up with a little light and start, you know, making things around in the dark and you're following it somewhere. And, and it's a wonderful way to finish the record. And, you know, and, and I think something else, what's interesting to me is that we went from a world where you know, the CD arrived in the 80s and the CD had 77 minutes of music on it. And I think we went through a phase where people were making records that were really long. And then the combination of, you know, the digital era and people picking all individual songs. And then for the people who are more music fans, the reemergence of the CD has led to this world where actually you want, you know, this record is probably 34, 35 minutes long, maybe there's a night songs and you can really consume it in a sitting and then go back to it to an individual song. So I hope people have enjoyed this conversation and it's not my traditional leadership conversation. I think you got probably the deepest insight on me personally that you've had into any of the episodes and Susan, Thank you for being such a wonderful guest in my life. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's really wonderful. Well, thank you for, I mean, as I said in the earlier episode that we recorded, I just, you know, I think I wouldn't have gone this direction if I hadn't had your support. If I hadn't had, you know, I, d I don't think I would have believed in myself enough to do all of the things that I've done in my career if you hadn't believed in me. So thank you. Well, I had a really good time doing this for this one record. So maybe we'll do a few more that I'll intersperse as additional bonus episodes. We'll go deep into the other records. Sounds great. And maybe people will get to know your wonderful music. Thank you. Thank you, love. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please find a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it in social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when I release them. And if you're listening on a platform that allows reviews, like Good Pods or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating or a review. And remember, the best review in June and July will receive a copy of Bill Principale's book, Improvisational Leaders, and the best review in July and August will receive a free copy of Susan CD, All Is Quiet, you know, the one we just talked about. Now, keeping with my tradition to play one of Susan's songs after the credit, stay tuned to hear Follow, the song that also closes the album. 
If you don't want to wait, just go and listen to Susan on all major streaming platforms. And if you want to buy her music, you can find it on her site, susanmusic.com. Also, make sure you follow Susan on Instagram at Susan C Music. That's her handle. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for the handle at al4edp with a D. And find the show Authentic Leadership for Everyday People on Facebook. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Willems on bass. And now, followed by Susan Cattaneo. Let her lead, let her go She always knows the right way Let her fly, she is wise She always finds the right way Oh